Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Series four will be the last in this podcast, and it has been the most incredible experience to dig into so many different aspects of the plant breeding world and literally the world. If you're listening to this, you're part of a community that spans the globe from Albania to Zambia, Adelaide, Australia and Ames, Iowa to Zurich. This is one of those episodes of Plant Breeding Stories, where we talk to someone who is not exactly a plant breeder, but whose work is super relevant to our field. Professor Girish Chowdhury is an expert in robotics, who's taken his expertise and applied it to the needs of plant breeders in setting up a company called EarthSense. In this episode, we talk about how EarthSense uses robotics to speed up and enhance the collection of phenotyping data during plot trials, making it almost 10 times faster and providing a much richer data set. We talk about the difference between academia and industry, using plant breeding as a route into agriculture more widely, and how to train the next generation of students in AI and robotics to see a wider range of industry applications than the tech industry. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Professor Girish Chowdhury. So we'll start with an easy question. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. So um, so I'm a professor of uh, ag and bioengineering and computer science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and also the co-founder and uh, CTO, uh, Chief Technology Officer at EarthSense, Inc., which is a company that I co-founded about four years ago with my very good friend, Chinmay Soman. My formal training is actually in aerospace engineering in Australia. So 2003 is when I graduated. But I've always been working in robotics, field robotics. Uh, It started with drones. Uh, When I was done with my undergraduate degree, I started working at the German Aerospace Center, working on unmanned aircraft, as we call them then. And then that led to an interest in robotics uh, and mobile robotics overall, and in particularly field robotics, so robots that are not in indoor environments, that are outdoors, that are doing things in the real world. Then I, uh, and I kind of did my PhD in this area at Georgia Tech, and then spent some time at uh, MIT doing a postdoc and then started faculty positions. And I was always interested in like kind of creating robots that make an impact on the real world. Robots that are designed to help people. I really strongly believe, and even when I teach robotics, I always tell uh, students that one of the things that roboticists have to do is, you know, we we write papers and that's great. And, uh, you know, we create technology, that's great. But, you know, we should really ask ourselves, where are the robots? Where is the impact? You see R2-D2 and C-3PO from Star Wars, and that's where most of us got into, you know, this stuff, right? Robots that can actually be useful to people. But then if you look at outside today, like robotics is not maybe as widely adopted as it should have been. I would say that the best working robot that I know of is an elevator. I mean, it's a robot. It, you don't even know that it's one. So we need, we need something more, right? I was always focused on trying to create systems that have an impact uh, in the real world. 
And uh, about four or five years ago, having done lots of defense projects with aerial robots, ground robots, I got very interested in this, uh, this idea of agricultural robotics. Did you have any connection to plants or agriculture? You know, was there a, a, any particular reason that the lights went on with, haha, this, this thing that I'm interested in with robotics could be usefully applied in this space? This, this school that I was in with, with my very good friend Chinmay, who also went to the same school, we had a lot of interactions with farmers. You know, in India, there's a lot of disparity between cities and, and villages. And so we would go out into these villages to meet with farmers and and the problems that they were facing were just uh, momentous, like they were just huge. So Chinma and I started chatting together after a long time of uh, having gone our own way. He was starting to get back into agriculture after having done a PhD in nanotech. And just feels really moved and uh, about some of the issues that farmers are facing around the world. And I was looking for a, an impactful application of robotics. Like defense is great, but the impact is not always something that you can write home about, right? I just started looking into this and it felt like field robotics would have a tremendous application in agriculture and it would really be valuable. So that's how it kind of came together. And it was through that that you got involved with the program in sorghum breeding. And that's when you had a light bulb moment about plant breeding. Is that right? Yeah. Through that program, I got exposed to this, this wonderful world of plant breeding. Like it just hit me so hard that, you know, that this, this foundation of agriculture is the seeds. It's the program that we install in, this, in the soil, right? That's how I, I think of it. And there's a lot of value in, in making that work better. So if I can make a plant that's resistant to diseases and to insects, then I don't need to spray. It's such a more foundational attempt at improving sustainability, right? So how can plants be more resilient 40 years from now when the planet is expected to be a lot warmer? So you've been developing a robot that can help plant breeders gather data on their plot trials. But before we dive into that, could you tell me what the key issues are or differences are between field robotics versus other kinds of robotics? In a nutshell, it's because the field environment is surprising. It's unstructured. You really have not a lot of control. And anything and everything that you can imagine will happen. Murphy's Law is active, full on, big time. So I would say, of course, we all know about the fixed robots that make your cars, right? So they are all programmed. They basically just orchestrate their movements extremely precisely. But mobile robots that go around and move carts around, those robots use a lot of navigation aids that are already embedded in the floor. You know, they will put some markers in the environment. They can also control who is where at what time. So you don't have that control when you're in the field. Right? You're literally in the wild. Sensors scrapping out. It gets cloudy and some GPS doesn't work or some broadcast station in Oklahoma is down so you don't have RTK precision anymore. There's also like ditches and holes and all, all kinds of things just like combined together. The other part that's also challenging about field robotics is that the applications typically demand that you deliver value at reasonable cost. You're going to a farm where, you know, the, the amount that you can get from the farm is kind of set. So so cost becomes a pretty big challenge. And just like computers and other industries have done well, we have to deliver at, at cost. It's not just about how fancy my robot is and how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of sensors I have, but can I make a good robot You know that doesn't cost an arm and a leg? So that's what makes field robotics really hard. It also needs to be more robust. I mean, it's not just, you know, to your point, not just unexpected things happen in the environment, but it's subject to more 
damage and dirt and subject to the elements right so harsh uncertain and changing environments that's what we we say right so it's like some of our really early robots that we were when we were just prototyping with 3d printing we send them to australia and they melted like they literally melted in the sun like in today they um, of course we have robots now deployed all over the world and you can kick them you can sit on them and they don't break but but that's absolutely true right so the system itself has to be very rugged very self contained easy to move around waterproof and things like that so tell me a bit more about your company earthsense what are your goals where are you based and so on our slogan is agricultural intelligence right and what we we believe very strongly that ai and robotics will provide new options for farmers that are foundationally and fundamentally more sustainable in the long term like why we founded earthsense was to heal the planet we wanted to create technologies that will make sustainable management a reality so we've we've just we've just been growing and you know and accelerating at really fast speeds and we're very fortunate to be in the urbana champagne area which is so conducive to this type of entrepreneurship especially in agriculture a confluence of agriculture and technology so we founded 2016 it was me and chinmay you know the uh, the two, the two uh, the two musketeers in in our garage i would say now we're 25 people strong full time and we have two offices one in uh, champagne urbana uh, and the other in uh, pune india we've uh, basically worked with many of the breeding the top breeding companies in total we've made about 130 140 robots and you know by design and by a uh, little bit by luck we've, we've robots have been fairly reliable compared to the ones that we started with at the lab now they're like really super reliable right and we're really uh, proud and happy with what we do why did you choose a plant breeding application for your first field robot what was the problem that you set out to solve they were limited by data they couldn't collect all the data that they wanted so we crystallized about around that and we said okay well this is a place to start right i mean uh, an issue with agricultural robotics and any robotics is that they try to go after the big one you know and the big path is far away you have to establish the market first right so this this was the place to start and then it had all the impact and there was a clear need and we had a product that we could make and actually help these people mhm and your robot is designed to help plant breeders with phenotyping is that right absolutely yeah so it's about helping plant breeders understand the physiology of the plants so that they can down select better and earlier and in a more efficient way so that they can uh, you know if you're a scientific uh, academic breeder you can get your research and your experiments done efficiently and in a more meaningful and confident way and if you're a commercial breeder you can bring products that farmers actually like that are predictable uh, to market earlier uh, than your competition and that's that's the the, the true value proposition So what kind of characteristics can your robot recognize in the field? What's being measured? So there are things that plant scientists measure today that drive their decisions on selections and and then there are things that they would like to measure. So let me start with the things that they do measure. So depending on what the growth target is, right? So if you're doing for example sorghum, which is where we had started with the Terramap project, that was all biomass. It was all about it was bioenergy sorghum. So it was about height and it was about leaf area index and stem width. Now that we're more into corn or maize, uh it's all about the yield, right? So one of the key phenotypes of interest right now is the height of the plant versus the height of the ear, the corn ear. Corn yields pretty well today uh compared to what it used to, 
but it's, uh, it's, it's tall, right? And it's subject to lots of wind damage. One question could be, can we breed shorter corn that is equally productive? And then it would be less susceptible to wind damage. Another example, if you move away from the commodities into the specialty crop, say papaya, right? So papaya, the trees can be taller, harder to get to. Can we breed a papaya that's so that it's, it's a dwarfer papaya, so it's easier to pick? Can we build papaya that's resistant to, let's say, different kinds of diseases? So I think each breeder breeding program would have a different target, and then they're looking for data. So these and then they measure. So in in maize, they measure height. They measure leaf area index, which is kind of a measure of uh, how much sunlight is penetrating through the canopy. They measure stem width. They measure ear height, which we mentioned, uh, talked about. So these are just some basic phenotypes, things. And then there's things that they don't measure today that they would really like to know, like leaf angle. Leaf angle is a great one. Like It's like a dream trait for some breeders because the angle of the leaf depends on how much energy it can capture. It's, it's nearly impossible to measure that in a field setting. So you'd have to walk around with a protractor, <laughs> bending in front of every plant. In the wind. <laughs> Put that protractor there in the wind in the 90 degrees Fahrenheit uh, temperature, right? And nobody wants to do this job. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> you can't measure everything today, right? That's what happens. So, so what breeders do is they say, okay, we're going to measure three plants from this one plot right? Because that's all, we, that's all the time we can afford. So right there, when that person goes in and picks the plants, there's already a bias, right? Which plants did they pick? And again, like I said, it's hard to find that labor. It's hard to train that labor. So you kind of are like getting really variable data. What I think the robots do really well is give you consistent data. Robots could make that possible. We could actually measure high throughput. Is it the sensing and imaging technology that's novel, or is it the fact that it's then automated and can just head off into the field and do its thing? Yeah, it's a confluence of three things that I think Ursense has managed to, to put together. So for the first is the platform itself, this idea of a compact agricultural robot specifically designed for phenotyping. So we designed this form factor that was specifically designed for breeders. It was a small robot that would fit in the plant canopy. So its width was just right. The cameras were positioned perfectly. They are inset into the robot so that they get the longest view to the plant so that the plant images are not blurry. The little details on the cameras are figured out. Like they all have exposure control. They have a gimbal stabilized. The robot has independent suspension, has a brushless DC motor so it can go into waters. Like, you know, before us, there, there isn't a smaller robot than ours that actually is rugged and has been deployed and you can kick around and throw around in the field. The second is this autonomy. So being able to be autonomous under the plant canopy. Uh, so under the plant canopy, GNSS or GPS isn't as accurate as it is outside. It's, it's still use, usable for identifying the plot. So you can get an accuracy of up to 10 centimeters, 40 centimeters, but you can't rely on it to navigate under the canopy like how a tractor does. So we had to create technologies that were basically reactive to the plants. We sensed the plants around us using either LIDARs or cameras, vision, and then keep the robot in the center of the row with that. So that was another big set of innovation. And the third one was this whole sensing, like data analysis. So we take the camera data from this, uh, you know, specifically calibrated cameras, combine that with the GPS and inertial and robot other data, and then create these measurements of stem width. It's a, it's a geometric measurement. It's not just like how many things I see, but what is the width of it? Ear height. So first we have to find the ear 
and then find its height, then plant height, uh, plant count, all of these things. And we, we deliver them at scale. And we guarantee that when you collect data over a thousand plots or a hundred thousand plots in case of one of our customers, our data is attributed to that plot that which you collected the data from. Because if it gets messed up, then it's completely useless to them, <laughs> right? So we guarantee that. And there's a whole process. I mean, part of that is the fancy, shiny, whatever algorithms that we use for computer vision, uh, you know, and, and large, but the other, and large data sets that we use to train those algorithms. But the other part of it, it is the meticulous pipeline that picks up that data from the field on crappy internet connections, moves it to the cloud, verifies it automatically. There's even a human verification process in place that we can get done at high scale and then delivers the traits back to the breeder, you know, in 48 hours. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. We've been talking about your phenotyping field robot and how it gathers all sorts of data on plants in the field. But I wonder, there are so many different crops out there. Do you need to reconfigure or redesign the robot for each new crop that you work on? So, so almost, but not, not entirely. It's about the infrastructure, right? So when we were a young company, it was a big deal for us because, you know, we had to create that key IP. And then we were really early in, in the field too. But now we're at a point where I think what's more important is the rest of the thing. Like the robot doesn't change. The sensors don't always change as much. But the whole, all of that pipeline of moving that data, cleaning it up and putting it in the, in, in the place where our developers can go at it is figured out. And so, so we can now do traits like change from one crop to the other in like weeks. And also our models are getting better because we have like, you know, the last we counted 5 million annotated images or 5 million annotations from under the plant canopy. Nobody has this kind of data. With that kind of data, we can pre-train, we can do unsupervised learning, we can do all kinds of the, the top tray, the tools in the, in the market. And that's where like, I'm fortunate to have this connection to academia where I actually teach AI and teach robotics, right? So I know what's going on over there. And with our, you know, AI farms, uh, it's the, the National Center for um, AI, in, like, one of the National Centers for AI and Agriculture at UIUC. So I'm involved with that. So there's a lot of these new AI methods that are coming out. They, you know, they're applied to something totally different, right? Uh, mostly like these autonomous driving things, but we're pretty aware of those. So we can leverage those and speed up how fast we can move from one plant or one trait to other. What made you choose to go for a ground-based robot rather than something that goes overhead? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in fact, we started there. We started with drones, right? So when EarthSense was founded, we were like, let's make drones uh, a reality in ag. And, and we, we went through this uh, National Science Foundation program called i which, uh, I mean, by the way, this is, again, wearing uh, quickly my um, slightly more academic hat for any entrepreneur who's interested, a science entrepreneur, and if you're in the United States, you should definitely spend some time with the NSF i program. They, they get you to get out of the building and talk to real people, people who are going to be your customers to figure out the value proposition. And so we did that. And we went out and we talked uh, to a very large number of uh, agronomists, uh, crop breeders, and other stakeholders, farmers. 
And the thing we kept hearing over and over again is people were, people were excited about drones. They had tried them out, but the drones weren't giving them the information that they wanted. So they wanted data that was under the plant canopy, which is simply not visible to drones and not visible to satellites. So that's how we got into this whole idea of like, okay, well, people, customers kept asking, well, can you get me a drone that flies between the plants? And I was like, well, then let's just roll <laughs> in between the plants. That's just better. And the other thing they were not happy about is the battery life and all, which also, like our robots have a four hour, three, three hour, four hour battery life, depending on sensor configurations, which is, you know, like just a lot. And I know it's a common complaint from people in agriculture towards ag tech companies in general. This idea of data is great, but what's the application of that data? How does it really help me? So can you talk to me a bit more about how that data is being applied? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So raw data that from our robots, right, is basically camera data and the LiDAR data and other data. That's not directly useful to the breeders. So what I mean by data is actually the process traits. So breeders who are measuring, for example, ear height today, right? So it, would, it takes them a long time to measure ear height. They have to go out there with this stick or some other tool, push it through the crop, measure the ear height, record it down somewhere. We do that at least uh, 10 times faster, right? At least, and that's, I think it's a fairly big understatement. We probably do it much faster than 10 times than what a human would do. And then we get them a lot more data. We get them data for pretty much every single plant that is in the field. So 100 times more data, 10 times faster. Is, that is our clear uh, value proposition for these breeders. So all the measured counter trades, because at the end of the day, breeders are only interested in the CSV file that we, or, or you know whatever file that we give them that says their, their field map. They're like, okay, here is my field, and here is how each plot did in terms of ear height or height or width. And it's basically a heat map, and that's what they get. So tell me, what are your ambitions for the company? Where do you see things going from here? The next immediate thing that we're very interested in right now is uh, taking this technology uh, and continuing to helping the breeders, continuing to uh, you know, using that as, as our foundation, as our starting point, but bringing it to farmers. That's, that's the thing that we want to do. So we're working on uh, cover crop planting robots. Um, so robots that can go, again, using the same idea of going under the canopy and planting cover crops. So we can plant cover crops much earlier in the season. We can plant them in standing corn, basically remove the hassle of planting cover crops. We can do that at much more attractive uh, value propositions for the farmers. And that, that is good for the planet because they can sequester carbon. They also reduce the need for herbicides and uh, for nitrogen. So that's our next big ambition. So the you know, kind of the direction of travel is to use the robotics capability and all that knowledge around how do you make it robust in an agricultural setting. Um, but no, but then the, whether it's with sensing or with imaging or with some other, you know, planting technology, that's that bit is, that's where you have the scope to diversify. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, labor is a big issue in agriculture and, and, it, and it's a tricky issue. It's labor that nobody wants to work. In, right? I mean, if, if given a choice, everybody would prefer a job that's not in the field, right? And, and we've seen this, our parents have done the same. If you go to places uh, like India, that's what you see in the villages, right? Nobody wants to have their children continue to work in the farms. So labor is challenging. And so what happens is this, cr this crunch of labor 
is resulting in unsustainable ways in which uh, we do farming today. So, you know, we try to replace labor with chemicals. That's what we're doing in the Midwest, right? And pretty much everywhere. So just spray, 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 you know, pre-emergent, post-emergent, just spray as insurance, like chemicals as an insurance. This is not sustainable. So we need a much more sustainable way of replacing labor. And that is where we really strongly believe that robots come in. And, and so, so mechanical weeding is a great example. Is that the application that brought you to the Ag Launch Business Accelerator? Because, of course, that's focused on companies developing technologies that meet the needs of farmers, not really plant breeders. So tell me more about your involvement with them. So Ag Launch was one of our early uh, partners. Like They saw the value in what we were doing really early on. And they were really aligned with our mission that eventually we want to help farmers. But where we, we only want to bring farmers technology that's vetted and ready for them to deploy at scale. Because ag robotics is not a new idea, right? I mean, people have been talking about ag robotics for, I don't know, since robots have been around. The issue is that people are not able to de- deliver it at scale and at cost because farming is such a cost-sensitive uh, market. And robots actually have to do their job. So the, the place where we started was this idea of, you know, what can robots do in the farm? You know, the eventual goal is mechanical weeding uh, because there's this huge uh, crisis with herbicide resistance in weeds. So mechanical weeding would be great. But in order to get there, we need to be able to be autonomous, reliable, operational in large field settings. These smaller robots that are a lot more dexterous than larger tractors need to go in there and get their job done. And to go there, we need to master these So the first is this, let's make robots that understand their environment and deliver high quality data, right? And then maybe actually what happens is that we make the most complex robot first. So the next thing is cover crop. We actually don't need all that data. We just need the robot to be autonomous. And then for mechanical weeding, you don't even need to carry payload. It just has to carry things that, you know, disturb the soil. So we we take this, this, this body of technology, this IP, and then you, you create this, this corpus of knowledge and, and skill sets and technology that you can then focus and make more efficient and scale and bring costs down and then bring it to farmers. But, but in theory, this technology could be used in breeding for any kind of system. So, you know, whether it's using biotechnology techniques or organic breeding, you know, breeding for organic systems, it's the same principles of just collecting the data to make better decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about collecting high throughput data that is reliable, verifiable, and accountable in the sense that you know where that data belongs. Throughout your career, you've been walking that line between academia and industry. How do you think that has influenced your thinking? I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that in academia, we are so focused on novelty, right, and originality. And how do we solve a problem in a different way than somebody else? And in industry, we're focused on, did you solve the problem? <laughs> and is it a good solution? <laughs> yeah, the outcome is pretty, 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 pretty predictable in that way, actually, right? So every time I write a paper, I'm always worried about what my reviewers are going to say. Whereas in industry, it's like, I made something that you wanted and it works now. Today, what I really like about academia is that it has a focus on novelty, it has a focus on where, where do we go into the future. But in some cases, where we, do we go into the future is so far away from where we are today. And there's, it seems like people lose interest in actually taking where do we go and bringing that back and then actually moving that state of the art forward. 
and and speci specifically roboticists have always insisted on this like where is you know the proof is in the pudding right like we insist on actually taking stuff back from the theory and making it really happen so i think this path of be being between academia and industry startups specifically is a really rewarding and a necessary path because for technologies like field robotics you can't it's it's not just like you get some open source software and and make it work there's a lot of innovation that has to go through it. And you need people who are thinking uh, ahead of, you know, of just the mechanic. Like the mechanical robot is the easiest part of it. It's all the software and the algorithms that are hard. So having that connection with academia has really helped with that. Changing gears then, you know, you've, you've been through this career, which has got many different aspects to it, most recently, one of which is, is EarthSense. I'm wondering what you've found hardest so far in your career. Uh, I think, I mean, the thing that comes to my mind is, uh, is really, it's, it's about the people. It's about building teams uh, and, and having a vision and then motivating or, or leading teams towards that vision. So that, I think that's hard, I think. <laughs> What I find difficult in, in, in telling some of my new younger generation students is that they are all going after the, the, the hotness, the, the attractiveness, the flashiness of the algorithm and not so much on the use. But are you asking the next question? Okay, now that it works here, can I now actually make something useful that affects somebody's life in a meaningful way? And last question from me. What opportunities excite you for the future? Well, I absolutely think that robotics uh, and agriculture are really going to hit it together. I think we're going to have some meaningful impact of robotics and agriculture. I feel that agriculture is going to be the cradle for field robotics. It's going to be where some of these new technologies uh, will really make an impact. And I think I also really strongly believe that we can heal the planet. We can use AI, like it's time for AI, which is the pinnacle of our, like, you know, we figured out food and we did agriculture, we created societies. If you go all the way back 10,000 BC, right? And then we paid for it with freedom, we paid for it with uh, diseases. And finally, now we are at a point where AI and technology is at a point where it can go back and give back to agriculture. Like my dream, you know, my ultimate dream, and this is a dream that I share with my co-founder at uh, EarthSense, is that we can do uh, polycultures with robots, right? We can go back to the way Native American farmers were, uh, were farming, right? In these large food forests. We can bring that back with robots. I mean, that would be the utopia. So I, I really strongly believe we can get there. I think it's very ambitious, but... Uh, but, you know, you got to have a good dream. Excellent. Well, it's been really interesting and a very um, it's a really exciting future that that we're talking about here. So thank you very much for your time today, Professor Girish Chowdhury. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. If this episode has got you thinking about how we bring new technologies into agriculture, you should check out my new podcast documentary, Innovating AgTech. It explores the world of agricultural technology startups, and you can find it on all the usual podcasting channels. 
Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.